0: Good morning, um, welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. Uh, I'm glad that you're here. My name is John, by the way, I'm one of your deacons. Um, I have a few announcements to make. Community groups have started, but there's still time to sign up. There's multiple groups, of virtual and in-person and hybrid. Um, you can look on Realm for, for those. Uh there are two women's Bible studies starting uh September twentieth. So again, Realm, uh youth group meeting on the twenty-third, and Frank will send out information. Their joy groups um sign up is until the nine twenty-five and you can um look on realm or, or talk to um Claire Gardner. And last, your church needs you, um We need people on the sound table, and we need people to help with counting uh, the offerings after church. And you can talk to uh, to Dave Silvernell, Dr. Dave, or to John Paul May about um, those two things. You can figure out which one to talk to who about. Um, You can join me in the responsive call to reading now. Give ear, all my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth. In a parable, I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So please bow your heads and let's open in prayer. Our Father, please give us your spirit this morning and help us to worship. Thank you for meeting us in worship and prayer, for sustaining us through difficulty. Thank you for Jesus Thank you for our friends here and help us to love others, our friends and our enemies, like you loved us, your enemies. Make us like Jesus in every way. In his name, amen. Please stand as we continue to worship.
1: A crown of thorns you wore for me Loose for my transgressions And here's for my iniquities The wrath of God that I deserve
0: Was poured out on the
1: innocent It took my place, my soul to save is forever Jesus friend of sinners I love to tell the story redeeming love has been my peace and will be when in glory not death nor life nor anything can ever separate will not let me go Yes, I am His forever Not death or life nor anything can ever separate me A love that will not let me go Yes, I am His forever Yes, I am His forever the Lord, everything that, everything that, everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Praise, praise You in the morning, morning. Praise, praise You in the evening, praise You when I'm young and when I'm old. Praise You when I'm, I'm laughing, praise You when I'm, I'm grieving. grieving, praise You in the season and See how much your words, you power, your might, for handless love, and surely we would never cease to pray. But everything that, everything that, everything that has breath praise the Lord. And everything that, everything that, everything that. Praise the Lord praise, praise you in the heavens, join with the angels, praise, praise you forever, forever and a day. Praise, praise you on the earth, earth now, join with the creation, calling Lord. all the nations to your praise. And we could see how much your worth, your power, your might, your endless love. And surely we would never cease to pray. Let everything that, everything that, everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let everything that, everything that, everything that, everything that has breath praise the Lord, our conquering King, your name we raise, your triumph back to lie you say overcome
0: So if you're like me, these past six months have been um, unsettling and full of anxiety. Um, I found a lot of hidden fears in myself, and I continue to find them. I have been less kind and more angry, and less, um, less patient and understanding. And I've been more demanding, and I'm having to repent more often. Um, for more things, and there's no end in sight. But I also know that Jesus loves me, and my suffering increases my dependence on him, which brings him glory. We are all in God's hands. And when the potter's forming the clay, it doesn't seem like it's probably very pleasant for the clay. And we are being formed into Christ's likeness, and we can rejoice that God is doing this thing and this work in us. So please join me in prayer. Sovereign God, we pray on behalf of your church throughout the world. Oh, sorry, we're doing this one up here. So I'm going to read it, and then you. Yeah. Sovereign God, we pray on your on behalf of your church throughout the world, for this congregation and for our sister PCA churches in Potomac Presbytery. Today, we pray specifically for our campus ministers, fill them with your Holy Spirit and bless their ministry in person and online. A Reformed University Fellowship International at George Mason University, pastored by Reverend Matt DeLong, Reformed University Fellowship at Howard University, pastored by Reverend Cyril Chavis, and Reformed University Fellowship at Ma- University of Maryland, pastored by Chris, Reverend Chris Garriott. Lord, Lord hear our prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing, boundless, unmerited grace. We often feel like a failure. We often feel like we have failed our families in the decisions we've made, in things that we've done and in things we left undone. The weight of our shame rests heavily on our shoulders. We ask to be forgiven. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for all mothers and fathers that they would be wise, patient, and kind in, their, in the words they share with their children. We pray for orphans who have only the empty moments that the words of parents could fill. Help us to rest in the knowledge that you loved us before we even knew you. Lord, hear our prayer. Father, we don't deserve this kind of unmerited kindness. Teach us how to submit to your will and help us draw near to you, especially in moments of temptation. Thank you for your astonishing grace and mercy and overwhelming love. Lord, hear our prayer. Okay, let's pray. Lord, help us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of your word. Please pour your Holy Spirit out on us and teach us to love our Bibles and to to work to obey the things that you command there. Not to earn your favor, but to love you for your great mercy. Help us to know how very much you loved us. Help us to love you fully and love others with the grace that we have received from you. Strengthen us and take our fear away. Please give us more of you, more and more of you every day in our lives to help us in all of our fears and anxiety and all of our temptation and struggles. Thank you, Father, that you want to do these things. Please help us to trust you pray it all in Jesus name. Amen. So take a moment, um, to confess your sins to the Lord and, um, and we'll, we'll have his assurance apart. Let's pray. respond in unison. Oh God, all of these spoken requests and all of our unspoken requests, we present to you in the gracious name of Jesus Christ, your son, our savior, amen. So let's read the corporate uh, confession of sin and assurance of pardon. Almighty and most merciful father, we are thankful that your mercy is higher than the heavens wider than our wanderings deeper than all our sin forgive our frivolous attitude toward life our callousness toward suffering our envy of those who have more than we have our obsession with creating a life of constant pleasure our indifference to the treasures of heaven our neglect of your wise and gracious law help us to change our way of life so that we may desire what is good Love what you love and do what you command through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Hear the assurance of pardon from Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him.
1: As we uh, prepare ourselves to sing a hymn of praise to the Lord, I want to remind everybody that we have offering boxes in the back of the the sanctuary here. If you wanted to drop an offering into the offering box, that would be great. And For those that are watching from home, You can send in your your offerings if you're so led to the the church offices. So let us rise as we sing a, a hymn of praise to our Lord.
2: younger children can be dismissed to. Children's Church at this time. We'll see where Reverend Wong is in the back. All right. The rest of you will turn to Judges chapter 6. So Judges follows Joshua, so the seventh book of the Old Testament. And we are continuing our series in, on the uh, misused stories of the Bible. And today we come to one of uh, the stories about Gideon. So Judges 6 verses 36 through 40 and uh, please listen carefully as as always this is God's word for us. Then Gideon said to God if you will save Israel by my hand as you have said behold I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. We live by every word that proceeds from your mouth, and we need this word for it deals with another case of unlikely faith from an unlikely person. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us a greater understanding of who you are and what you do. Thank you for bringing us to this rather strange story, that we might learn more about you and have our faith renewed and strengthened as a result. Bring us to yourself, for we are sinners who wonder what we have to do with someone like Gideon. Help us to see your grace in his story. Help us to see our own need of your grace this morning. Help us to know you more through Judges chapter 6. And so we pray, have mercy on us this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, uh, the other day I saw this updated list of the most common phobias. So, the American Psychiatric Association, they don't put out this list, but they do define what qualifies as a phobia. And it, their definition is that something that causes such stress that it interrupts normal life function. That's a phobia. So, they have some of the traditional fears, Arachnophobia, which is fear of spiders. Anybody got that? Huh? A few people? I'm not sure how to pronounce all of these. Ophidiophobia, fear of snakes. Yeah. Necrophobia, fear of death. Glossophobia, fear of public speaking. Interestingly... That's the number one fear. People rank fear of public speaking higher than fear of death. So as that noted theologian Jerry Seinfeld has said, that means for most people, if they go to a funeral, they'd rather be the guy in the casket than the one giving the eulogy. This list had some non-traditional fears. Most of these I had never heard of before. Octophobia. Fear of the number eight. Olfactophobia. Fear of foul smells. How about this one? Dorophobia. Fear of animal fur. Not what you expected, is it? If the grandfather of ten, I developed the other kind of dorophobia. phobia. Cholrophobia. Fear of clowns, it's fairly common. Here's a new one on me, tocophobia, fear of pregnant women. Frank Wong has that. <laughs> Arachibutrophobia, which is, I'm sure you know, the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. <laughs> and there's a new one which is most interesting, one they think will soon become the new number one fear. Nomophobia. Fear of being without your phone. Apparently, 50% of Americans exhibit extreme anxiety symptoms if they're somewhere without their phone. Clearly, this one is for those of you who just looked up from your phones. Wait, what? Fear Of all kinds is part of life and your ability to handle life in large part is determined by how well you manage your fears however it's not a new thing how one handles fear has been an issue going all the way back to Adam and Eve and it's a major issue for our man Gideon here in Judges chapter 6 however it is not what most people get out of this passage And that's because this is the famous passage where Gideon puts out a fleece in order to have God confirm the instructions that he's already given to Gideon. And it's not just that Gideon doesn't like the instructions that God's given him, but rather he's terrified of the instructions that God's given him, which is understandable since God's instructions told him to go conquer a neighboring army. Judges 6 verse 14 Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. And so Gideon asked for a sign, the famous fleece, so he can be absolutely certain that's what God really wants him to do. But that's not how most Christians use this passage. Instead, we misuse it as a means of making decisions or manipulating our circumstances or more commonly as a means of manipulating God so we get what we want. None of which is actually addressed by Judges 6. So we'll come back to the misuse of this passage later on, but before we do, let's take a look at what Judges 6 is really about. And we'll start with a fleece of fear. A fleece of fear. For those of you who have the outline or... And those of you at home who've printed it off or have it on your screens, that's your first blank. See, the book of Judges takes us back to a time after Moses and Joshua, but before Israel had kings like King David. They're living in the promised land, and they have big problems. And these big problems were called Midianites. The Midianites had attacked the promised land. We see that in Judges 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And then we read about the Midianites a few verses later in verses 5 and 6. For they would come in like locusts in number, so they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people cried out for help to the Lord. And in answer to their prayer... God came to one of the most unlikely characters in all Israel, a man named Gideon. And so here's what happened. The angel of the Lord. And that's always a clue when you're especially reading in the Old Testament. You know, most scholars think this is the pre-incarnate Christ. When it talks, not just an angel, but the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord came to the place where Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. You have to sort of stop there. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now you have to get the irony here. Normally you thresh wheat in an open area uh, on a threshing floor so the wind will blow the chaff away. Wine is pressed in an enclosed or sheltered area. Uh, often in those days, it would be just a pit uh, dug on the ground or sort of a big barrel. And that's to keep the dust away uh, from contaminating the wine. But Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. Why? Because he's afraid. He's hiding from his enemies. Gideon is scared of the Midianites. He's afraid they're going to spy on him and take away his wheat. And so his fear is obvious here. And we're told about Gideon's behavior because we need to get the right picture of him in our minds. At this point, Gideon is not some action hero. He's not a strong man. He's no Samson who we'll see next week. He's not a confident kind of guy. Gideon is living with a little, distant, not very caring, not very powerful faraway God. And when we live with a little God, we live in a world where things rarely change. As things were yesterday, so they will be tomorrow. Our habits, our failures, our relationships, our flaws, our problems, we'll have to settle for threshing wheat in a wine press. Because our neighborhoods, our schools, our communities, our politics, cancel culture, our modern-day Midianites are too big for us and we just want to survive. So Let's go on. We keep reading Judges 6, verses 14 and 15. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he, Gideon, said to him, the Lord, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house like I said, not a very confident guy. But does any of that sound familiar? Actually, it sounds a lot like Moses. If you remember Moses back in Exodus 3 and 4, he said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And then in Exodus 4, he said, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, I am slow of speech and of tongue. It's the famous, here I am, send Aaron speech. It actually sounds a lot like Saul, 1 Samuel 9. Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? Is not my clan the humblest of all the clans, the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? And it sounds a lot like David. Also, 1 Samuel chapter 18 Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? And both Isaiah and Jeremiah say much the same thing. So Gideon's in good company. God has shown up, God has spoken, and Gideon's scared. It's not that hard to understand. Gideon has been greeted by the angel of the Lord. If you look at that greeting, Judges 6 verse 12, it says... And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now I imagine Gideon starting to look around. Just where is this mighty man of valor? And if there's one thing that Gideon did not think that he was at that particular moment, was a mighty man of valor. He's a scared farmer, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. Because he's scared the Midianites are going to come and steal his harvest. So the idea that he's a mighty man of valor doesn't make much sense. But Gideon's a faithful Israelite. So he makes a sacrifice before the Lord. And then God sends him on a minor mission. To tear down the altar of Baal. And Gideon does it. And the Midianites and the uh, Amalekites get mad. And they rise up against Gideon. And so Gideon calls all Israel to rally together and to make their stand against their enemies. And 32,000 men show up. Awesome. It looks like Gideon has gotten over his fear. But then he looks out over the valley of Jezreel and he sees 135,000 Midianites. And you can almost see him looking back over his shoulder at the 32,000 of his men, and then looking out at the 135,000 Midianites and saying, you know what, Lord, perhaps we should have another conversation. And this is where people label Gideon as a man of weak faith. But there's a big difference between having a weak faith and a great fear. And yes, the two can go together, but I don't think they do in this case. God has answered their prayers so far. But Gideon is overwhelmed by the odds against him. He's overcome by fear, so he goes back to the Lord. He needs further reassurance that God can and will deliver Israel. And certainly it's a cautious faith. And certainly he's struggling with great fear. But just as certainly, it's not unbelief. Because the opposite of faith is not doubt. And the opposite of faith is not fear. The opposite of faith is unbelief. And I don't think we have that here. So that brings us to our text for today. Joshua 6, starting at verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. Note, that's where he should have been in the first place. And then he requests, if there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. That would prove that the Lord was going to use Gideon to deliver Israel. The next morning, Gideon finds the fleece soaking wet, verse 38. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Still, he'd like some more uh, reassurance. So he puts the same fleece out and requests that God reverse the process. Verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all, all the ground let there be dew. And since wool has a tendency to absorb moisture, the fleece could only remain dry by supernatural intervention. And the next morning, the fleece was dry. Verse 40. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So Gideon is now ready to lead his troops against the Midianites. See, the Gideon story is not just the longest story of any of the judges. It's also the centerpiece of the book. Last week I told you that much of Old Testament Hebrew is written as a chiasm, which means that the main point comes in the middle of the text. Well, Gideon is the middle narrative of the book of Judges. He has three judges coming before him and three judges coming after him. And if you take the Gideon narrative, chapters 6 through 8, then these verses are the centerpiece of the Gideon story. So what is it that we learn from this, from Gideon's struggle to believe God's promise. If this is not a fleece of fear, then perhaps it's a fleece of faith. Fleece of faith. See, the Lord grants both signs to Gideon because his request is not a demand made in unbelief, nor is it an arbitrary test of God's faithfulness. And a double sign is actually appropriate because Gideon is shortly going to experience a double testing of his faith. And as we learned in Sunday school this morning, you saw all the connections between the various parts of the Bible and that Scripture interprets Scripture. So now we'll see that the call of Gideon is actually very similar to the call of Moses, which you can find in Exodus 3 and 4. First, like Moses, Gideon was doing an ordinary task when he was called. Second, like Moses, Gideon met the angel of the Lord. Third, like Moses, God was introduced to Gideon as the God of his fathers. Fourth, like Moses, God told Gideon that he would deliver Israel. And fifth, like Moses, Gideon is given two signs. Remember, Moses was given two signs when he first uh, said was called. One was he received the sign of turning his staff into a serpent and back again. And then making his hand leprous, he put it in his cloak And it was leprous, and he put it back, and it came out, and it was well. And all that was in order to convince him that the call really came from God. And sixth, like Moses, Gideon felt inadequate, and he asked to be excused from this task, which, of course, God denied by saying that I will be with you. And seventh, like Moses, God gave Gideon a specific, impossible task to perform. So given these parallels between the call of Moses and the call of Gideon, it seems that Gideon asked for a sign for the same reason that Moses did, so that Israel might be convinced that it really was God who had spoken to him. So Gideon is like Moses, sent by God to deliver his people accompanied by miraculous signs. The signs themselves are reminiscent of Moses' signs and the plagues that God brought against Egypt. Like Moses, Gideon doubted God's power to do what he said, and uh, Moses was given the sign of the rod uh, turned into a serpent, which actually revealed uh, and showed God's conquest over the serpentine god of Egypt. Every one of the plagues against Egypt showed God's conquest over one of Egypt's gods. And the sign of the fleece is a similar test between Israel's God and Baal, who is the Canaanite God of rain and dew, among other things. And Gideon is asking God to show his sovereignty over Baal by showing his sovereignty over the dew. Gideon clearly understood what God had commanded. The fleece is a request for God to confirm his power, not merely for Gideon to discover God's will. Now, as we said, Gideon's dogged by fear of the Midianites and of their gods, but with sufficient signs and assurances, he acted to accomplish God's purposes. And in Judges 7, God reduces his forces from 32,000 to 300 and defeated the Midianites anyway. And yet Gideon's subsequent actions in Judges 8 would reveal him to be someone who, like his people, would go on to forget the power of God, take the credit himself, and it would bring a great falling away of faith for both Gideon and his people. The story of Gideon is a story of trusting God despite your fears, and then because you failed to fear God, start trusting in yourself and falling away from faith. But what it is not is a story about discovering God's will for your life. In this story, just like Moses, just like David, everybody already knows what God's will is. Judges 6 is perfectly clear that Gideon knew exactly what God wanted him to do. The fleece is simply to confirm God's will, not to discover God's will. And he actually says that. In our text, in verse 36, then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So no matter what conclusion you come to the practice of putting out a fleece, remember it was originally used to confirm God's will not to discover it and that brings us to the dangers of fleeces the dangers of fleeces in his book knowing God's will Blaine Smith who a long time was at fourth Presbyterian in Bethesda Maryland he tells a story about a friend of his by the name of Brock who lives in the DC area and Brock had a female friend named Kelly. I don't know if these names are real or not, but that's what's in the book. And Brock and Kelly had always been friends, but they had never been romantically interested in each other. But Brock realized he's beginning to have feelings for Kelly. And it just so happened that she's coming to the D.C. area in a few days, and he wondered if he should say anything about these developing feelings. And so while he's away at a church retreat, He decides to set a fleece out before the Lord. He said, Lord, if you want me to pursue this romantic relationship with Kelly, may a deer cross my path. That actually seemed like a good bet since he was out in the woods at the time on a retreat. Kind of like the guy who said, Lord, if you give me a parking space in front of the donut shop, I'll know it's okay for me to go in and get donuts. And on the fifth time around the block, there, behold, was a parking space. Anyway, so he's out in the woods. He's put out this fleece to see a deer, and he saw all kinds of animals, but no deer. So he goes home, assuming that God wasn't going to grant his fleece. A few days later, he's driving along the beltway, comes to the Ty- Tyson's Corner exit. As you know, heavily populated place and he's driving off the freeway and he can't believe his eyes there's a deer standing by the exit he can't believe it God has answered his prayer the fleece has come true it must be God's will for him and Kelly to be together so Friday comes and Kelly arrives and Brock's excited because he'd seen the deer at the beltway exit and he knows it's God's will for them to be together and as the weekend rolls on She doesn't seem to be paying much attention to him. And he's just bursting with excitement. So finally he says, Kelly, I have these feelings for you. Do you have any feelings for me? No. So he asks her again, believing God's in it. Kelly, do you think there's any possibility that you might have some feelings for me? No. So he tells her about the prayer and the fleece and the deer and asks her, Well, what about the deer, deer? To which she responds, I don't know, honey, that's your problem. And that's why putting out a fleece often leads to doubt and confusion. Because biblically, this is not how God works. Before we leave this question, at the risk of being repetitive, Let's nail down the central point here about fleeces. Our contemporary usage of a fleece is not the same as Gideon's. Today we use the fleece when we're unsure about God, uh, what God wants us to do. We don't know whether to get married or not. We're not sure if we should choose this school or that school. We're torn between uh, two job offers. We don't know whether to move or to stay. And we use the fleece when we don't know what God's will is. But in Judges 6, Gideon already knew without a doubt what God's will was. And that's important. The fleece was never used to discover God's will. The only time it's ever used is to confirm God's will, which had already been made unmistakably clear. Gideon knew God's will. He was just scared to do it. So we ask for confirmation from God. And when we use putting out a fleece to discover God's will, we're using it in a different way from the only time it's ever used in the Bible. When we use it to discover God's will, and Gideon used it to confirm God's will, you have to realize it's actually a big difference. The second danger of putting out a fleece comes very close to trying to manipulate God. The Bible repeatedly warns us against putting God to the test. Jesus said so in Matthew 4. And what's putting God to the test? It's any attempt to box him in according to our standards. It's any attempt to say, God, if you're going to work, let me tell you what you need to do. And God says, it doesn't work that way. I'm God and you're not. The Bible repeatedly warns us against asking God for a sign. Matthew 12, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now one, if you look at the context, there had already been a number of signs, which they didn't recognize. But Jesus answers them, Matthew 12:39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. A clear statement, which then he repeats four chapters later in Matthew 16. A fleece involves setting out an arbitrary and unrelated sign that actually attempts to force God's hand by causing him to reveal something about the future. It's not what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible tells us to seek wisdom. And seeking wisdom means asking God for specific guidance involving the relevant circumstances of the decision you need to make. And you may need to think about that, but the distinction is real and crucial. Our Father wants us to seek wisdom, not putting out fleeces in order to bring us to a place where our trust is in Him alone, not in circumstances, not in fleeces, not in things we can control. He wants us to to bring us to a place where our trust is in God alone. Now, commentators speculate like crazy about all this stuff. About the fleece and the dew and what it all means. But there's at least one thing I think is happening here. Reformed Theological Seminary where I teach. In Systematic Theology 101, one of the first things they teach you is you cannot know and commune with God unless God chooses to be known, and unless God chooses to commune with you. That's the only way. And Gideon is saying here, Lord, you've changed me. You've called me out of idolatry, but if I'm going to do this, I need to know you. I need to know that you're real. I need to taste it. I need to see it. I need to be able to say that I've communed with a God that is not like the Baals I once served. And what God is doing in this miracle, I think, is sheer grace, total grace, in a way that Gideon doesn't deserve or that any of us deserve. God is saying, I'm willing to reveal myself to you. Even though you're a sinner who doesn't deserve it, I'm willing to come down so far that I will commune with you. And the first thing we see is God's telling us, look, I made nature all of creation. I can flip it upside down. You want dew on the fleece? Fine. You want dew on the threshing floor and not on the fleece? I can do that. I'm not a creature like the things you've been worshiping. You need to encounter me. You need to see my absoluteness. You need to wrestle with the nature of God himself, absolute deity in himself, and be confounded by that and changed by that. And you need to contemplate what we call theology proper, the nature of God. That's what changes us. That's how we commune with God. We sit before a God who's revealed himself and let his being overwhelm us, overpower us, overcome us. And that's what's happening here. In pagan Baalism, you don't get to commune with the idols. But in biblical Christianity, you talk with the living God. You ask, show yourself to me, and he did. He has. He has in the Holy Spirit. He has in the special revelation, that's the scriptures. He has in the history of redemption, and he has in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is a God who, in patience, comes and says, I will commune with you. Despite your sin, I will change your life. That's what's happening to Gideon in this miracle. Gideon needed to know and commune with God who is so much greater than an idol, so much greater than man, so much greater than Gideon himself. Now this may be familiar for those of you that have little kids. You know, when our children were small, we used to ask them, how big are you? And they weren't even a year old, could hardly say anything yet. But they always had the same answer. They would raise their hands and say, so big. And we probably did that a thousand times. We want our kids to know how they think of themselves matters. We don't want them to think of themselves as small or weak or insignificant. We want them to think of themselves as so big. And it was sort of fun and kind of a game, and we did it again and again and again. And I'm sure many of you have done that when your children, when they were little... And many of you will do that with your children when you're little because it's fun. But how big is your God? Let's move from children to the Lord. How big is Christ in your life? I'm convinced that the way we live is a consequence of how we view God, a consequence of the size of God, not how big he really is, but how we perceive him. And the primary problem in our lives is we're not convinced. We're absolutely safe in the hands of a fully competent, all-knowing, ever-present, utterly loving, infinitely big God. If I wake up in the morning and I go through the day with a little God, there's consequences. I'll live in a constant state of fear and anxiety because everything depends on me. And my mood will be governed by whatever circumstances hit that day. If I live with a little God, I'll find it unnatural to pray when I need to because I'm not really sure that God makes a difference and that prayer matters. If I live with a little God, I'll become a slave to what other people think about me because I don't live in the security of a big God's acceptance of me. If I face temptation to speak deceitful words in order to avoid trouble, I'll do it. If I can get credit for something at work that I haven't earned, and I don't trust there's a big God who sees in secret and will one day reward, I'll do it. When we have a little God, we pray without faith, worship without awe, serve without joy, suffer without hope, and the results, this life of stagnation and fear, an inability to persevere and see it through. And it's against this backdrop that the writers of Scripture never tire of telling us that we do not live with a little God whatever we need God is bigger whatever our weakness God is stronger only Jesus makes possible life with a big God because it's on the cross we see the God who's bigger than our sin and guilt and shame and regret and it's in that empty tomb from which Jesus came forth we see the God who's bigger than death itself One of the great professors at Princeton Theological Seminary way back in its better days, about 100 years ago, was a man named Robert Dick Wilson. And one of his students had been invited to preach in chapel 12 years after he graduated. And Dr. Wilson, who at this time was very old, came in and sat down near the front. And at the end of the service, the old professor came up to his former student, extended his hand and said, If you come back again, I will not come to hear you preach. I only come once. I'm glad that you are a big godder. When my boys come back, I come to see if they're a big godder or a little godder, and then I know what their ministry will be. And his former student asked him to explain, and he replied, Well, some men have a little god, and they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and authority of Scripture. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I call them little Godders. Then there are those who have a big God. He speaks, and it's done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those that fear him. You have a great God, and he will bless your ministry. And he paused a moment and smiled and said, God bless you, and he turned and walked out. See, the story of Gideon isn't actually about Gideon. And it isn't chiefly about his fear, and it's not about his faith. It's about God who alone brings the victory. He is the one who reveals himself to us. God may never wet our fleece or dry our dew, But if we believe in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, if we see God as so great that he creates out of nothing and gives life to the dead, if you and I really believe this, then we are, in the words of Robert Dick Wilson, big godders. And it will make an immense difference in our faith and in how we live our life. So no, I ask again, how big is your God? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at the grace you showed Gideon. It seems to us to be so strange and so scared and so undeserving, and yet you drew him to yourself in an act of amazing grace. We're not nearly so amazed at the grace you've shown us, it's because we think we have more faith than Gideon. But your word makes clear that's not the case. We doubt, we fear, we sin just as much, if not more than he did. And yet here you are again, showing grace to the undeserving, to us. Lord, thank you that no one's beyond your grace. Thank you that we're not beyond your grace. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers our sins as we respond to you in faith. So make this faith in our big God, part of our everyday life. For we pray this, And ask it in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
1: Amen. Would you please stand and join us in closing worship?